Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's January 23rd, 1986, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. If the coming together of Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash in 1956 resulted in a million dollar quartet, then surely the group of performers who held an impromptu-ish jam session today in history in 1986 must have amounted to about a billion bucks, especially if you consider inflation. For it was on this day that the first ever inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame came together in a surprisingly functional function room at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. Yeah, I mean, let's just reel off the list of people who were involved in this jam session because it is quite extraordinary. On one stage, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, Billy Joel, Keith Richards, Ron Wood, Neil Young, Steve Winwood, John Fogarty and Chubby Checker. And uh, listeners to our episode, Let's Do the Twist, will be pleased to know that on this occasion, Chubby Checker did indeed do the twist. (laughs) That's all he had. (laughs) No one was disappointed. That's all he had in life. I was going to say, you'll never guess what he's saying, guys. (laughs) Uh, Not everyone played their own hits though Jerry Lee Lewis covered Johnny B. Good it must it must have been very exciting to see but also weird because you're like wow look at all these cool guys coming together and just riffing off one another but they were doing it in front of an audience of about 1,000 music industry executives and, you know it cost a thousand dollars to buy a seat at one of the front tables three hundred dollars for seats further back which really speaks to the fact of how hard it is to create something like what Ahmet Ertigan who was the Atlantic Records chairman who founded the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame what he had in mind and he said we don't want this thing tainted even faintly by commercial considerations. Mm. It's a non-profit foundation and we're not going to allow these ceremonies to become an opportunity for the music industry to blow its own horn. We do enough of that already. <laughs> and there was kind of an undertone of redressing a racial injustice as well. You know, he references people like Ray Charles and blues singers. He says they are the foundation on which the record industry was built. And in many, many cases, these artists received little recognition and less money for their efforts. So, you know, it was never going to quite sit easily, the idea that this is a music industry event. It is, you you know, pony up thousands of dollars to attend. But also we're here to recognise the lesser known faces of rock and roll. Mm. I mean, obviously, these first class of inductees are hardly the lesser known faces, but that was the long term goal of the project. Yeah, I mean, Ertigan himself is a personality who's probably worthy of a future edition of this show just on his own, actually. He was... Uh a Muslim by birth, the son of a Turkish diplomat. And I think he knew he was quite unique in that sense and had the ability to be the person to say, let's do a non-profit. I mean, as you're saying, people talk about the paradox of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame being how can you have an austere event about something that's punky and up yours in spirit. But actually, in a way, just the very basic paradox of it is he wanted to do it for not for profit. Yeah. <laughs> this is the 1980s when, you know, music was very much for profit. And amongst all these things that he felt about trying to keep the integrity of what he and his partners were trying to do in this venture was that it shouldn't be filmed for television, Mm. which seems completely nuts because if you try and find this footage we're describing, 
you know, Chuck Berry and Neil Young doing Roll Over Beethoven with Jerry Lee Lewis. It sounds great. It looks awful. It's been filmed by like an Associated Press news camera or something. Yeah. Because they didn't want it filmed for telly, just for the news. Well, I think it's a shame for those of us now in 2023 that the televised footage isn't available because it sounds like it was a pretty fun night. You know, people were dancing on the tables and there was some and, rock and, and roll behaviour. I'm sure they were twisting for the, the two and a half minutes that Chubby Chucker was on stage. <laughs> no, Rebecca. <laughs> he also, I'm sure, did Let's Twist Again. Let's Twist Again. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And let's hopefully he did, um, was it, the, t- the twist begin <laughs> and twistiamo or whatever the Italian one was called. Um, at one point, apparently... Keith Richards peeled off his black tuxedo jacket to reveal a garish green and black leopard skin pattern jacket underneath before presenting the trophy to Mr. Berry and confessing, I lifted every lick he ever played, to which Chuck Berry responded, Dynamite. <laughs> okay, so that's the event itself, and they still run events, sometimes at their HQ, sometimes actually still in the Waldorf Astoria in New York. But here's a confession. I didn't realise there actually was a physical building and mm. you could go there. I've now Googled it. And yes, it's very impressive. It's designed by the architect who did the Louvre extension yeah. in Paris. Yeah, guy likes glass pyramids. He right? did the same again. <laughs> yeah. same again. Got any other tricks, um, man? <laughs> no, it's this. <laughs> but I, I didn't know that. Sorry, Americans, that there was a big museum you could go and see and they've got like stuff, you know, John Bon Jovi's handwritten lyrics and Jimi Hendrix's guitar or whatever. But the more interesting question, I suppose, than, you know, what's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, why is it in Cleveland? (laughs) Okay, so Cleveland's story, like they lobbied very hard Mm. for this. Their pitch was based largely on the fact that it was a Cleveland radio station DJ, Alan Freed, who is credited with popularising the term rock and roll. I'm like, I'm like, that's good that's more of like an etymology based (laughs) claim like rather than all the famous rock and roll stars of cleveland but realistically you know the city council did promise to cough up 65 million dollars for its construction i feel like that may have swayed things yeah i think that like one of the justifications was that other cities you know, have more an affiliation with a particular type of music, like, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, whereas Cleveland's whereas Cleveland complete is, lack yes. of association <laughs> yeah. goes across all genres <laughs> of rock and roll. It is a blank slate. <laughs> it's just as unrelated to hip-hop as it is to heavy metal. I mean, it got pretty desperate. I read part of the application where they're basically what they were saying the people of Cleveland really liked rock and roll. Like rock and roll stations are very popular around Cleveland. And it's also not that far from... I actually Googled it because I wasn't quite sure where Cleveland was, and it's only an eight-hour drive from New York City, so it's not hard to get to. And there are so many different things that are kind of worth seeing once you get to the, the museum. Although wow, it is I can't real... wait to take on this eight-hour drive from New York City to see things it's kind of worth seeing. Okay, well, it's such it is such a mix because you've got... like really great stuff like you know Tupac's notebooks Michael Jackson's glove Ringo Starr's drum kit David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust suit all of this great stuff but then you've also got just these weird anomalies that that you can imagine the people who run the museum were just trying to pack it out with they had an extra room in the pyramid and they needed something to go in there and so you have like Hendrix's family couch (laughs) why does that need to be preserved (laughs) well curator Jim Um, Hank told Billboard magazine mothers are often a good source of material that's how we got a lot of stuff from Jim Morrison and the Everly Brothers people love to see things like report cards handwritten notes and childhood possessions See, so, women yeah. do have a role in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, guys. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, let's talk about that then, since you bring it up. <laughs> yeah. So women have disproportionately not been inducted 
into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the accusation. Yeah, so it's 92% male. The first woman yeah. inducted was in the second class of inductees. It was Aretha Franklin in 1987. And in recent years, there have been attempts to redress the balance, kind of. I mean, as late as 2016, there wasn't a single woman in the latest class of inductees. So I think this speaks to that paradox which is you can't attract some of the biggest legends of rock and roll and not have it become in some way a commercial endeavor but at the same time then you've got Ertigan's original vision which was about finding those people who are you know were more obscure who weren't recognized necessarily in their time and there are countless women who would meet that description you know there are hundreds of going from you know the early blues singers all the way up through the 70s 80s there are female pioneers who weren't recognized at the time and if you stuck by Ertegun's original vision for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it wouldn't actually be that hard, I don't think, to have a gender balance. But this is the big criticism, which is that behind the scenes, it is quite an opaque process. There are about 500 voters. It's a bit like the Academy Awards. You know, there are about 500 people who are eligible to vote, but the committee kind of gets final say. And also the nominating committee now sort of bears that as a mark of pride, that lack of transparency. John Landau, who is the chairman of the nominating committee, said, uh, we've done a good job of keeping the proceedings non-transparent. It all dies in the room. And I guess they don't want it to be a matter of great scrutiny in a way because, you know, too many voices and you start to have people shouting for absolutely every act who they have ever loved uh, being inducted into this Hall of Fame. But at the same time, you have a feeling that there needs to be some sense of accountability and not just the sticking place that they came up with in 2013 of the fan vote, which they unveiled with great fanfare. But then it became clear later on that the fan vote is pretty much mathematically inconsequential because a voting body of of more than 600 artists and music industry professionals selects who gets in. And the total fan vote's weight is equal to one of those industry professionals. <laughs> I mean, and the other issue as well is that rock and roll is a finite genre. If you're trying to keep those big names in, you are going to run out of names. And you know, yeah. this has been going on for almost 40 years now. So recent inductees have included people like Eminem and Dolly Parton. And Dolly Parton actually asked to be removed from the nomination because she was like, I I'm, I'm don't really fit. But they insisted. Yeah, and, <laughs> and what they said was, I'm sorry, but it's too late, but we've sent your nomination out to the people who are going to vote on it. And she was like, OK, well, I guess if they vote for me, I'll turn up. And she did, and she was great. She was great. But um, <laughs> other people have been rather firmer about not turning up. <laughs> That's uh, true. My favourite is uh, Axel Rose, who wrote a 1,000-word open letter to the LA Times. Quote, I strongly request that I not be included in absentia, and please know that no one is authorised, nor may anyone be permitted to accept any induction for me or speak on my behalf. Neither former <laughs> members, label representatives, nor the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame should imply, whether directly, indirectly, or by omission, that I am included in any purported induction of Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Tomorrow. He must have felt like Austin Powers. You know, like he'd been preserved and then defrosted. <laughs> Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.